COVID-19, we all thought this podcast would be shut down. We were all wrong. This is Above the Fold and Below Your Expectations. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Above the Fold. You got just Jeff this time, unfortunately, but I am joined by an old colleague and friend of mine, Will Stevens. Will Stevens is a uh, senior manager of client engagement over at Seer Interactive. Seer Interactive is any of you digital marketing content marketers should be fairly familiar with them. Uh, run by Will Reynolds, who is uh, pretty chummy with um, Rand Fishkin. So he's you know they've been top of the market for quite some time. Pretty well known thought leaders in the industry. Um, Will, thanks for joining me today. How you doing, man? Thanks for having me. Doing okay. How about you? Uh, I mean, <laughs> I'm okay. I've only seen the inside of these same walls for the for the past three months. You know, things could be worse, but the, I'm bored as hell. How about you? The, the the pleasantries take on a different tone when we all know that we've been locked down for for two months. So uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. We can we can speak plainly. It sucks. Yeah, it sucks, but it could be worse. You know. Yeah, I mean, we said it before we started recording, making lemonade. So taking the opportunity to be positive and optimistic and health and livelihood are luxuries these days. So grateful for that. Yeah. But also being a human and being okay with having a bad day and being absolutely sick of this. Um, you got to calibrate to the situation and feel the emotions that suck that go along with this too. So I'm in the middle with all that. So how is how is Seer managing the whole situation? Like what's um you're all working remote, I'm assuming, and I'm assuming that's probably not much of a problem. Like what's what's going on with you guys? We are. You know, we're fortunate that this line of work and knowledge workers, you go to Wi-Fi, you can pretty much do it anywhere. I think I'm seeing that that branding emerge, not work from home, work from anywhere, because we're rethinking our, our homes in general. But Seer's doing great. Uh, I've been here three years. We have incredible leadership, very transparent about where we stand in the market with our clients as a business, our growth, you know, the trajectory we're on. So great place to be part of missing the office. Uh, never thought I'd hmm. say I miss a commute, but I do. But that said, you know, it's it's still fine. This is now just we're settling into what we've been doing for however long now. So It'll be extended. We'll figure it out. We'll come out the other side and have plenty of challenges to deal with on that side of things. So all things considered, uh, we're doing just fine. What What is it about missing the office? Because I I mean, I, I, this is not new to me. The only thing that's new to me is I don't go to coffee shops anymore. So I mean, I miss some of that human interaction. But for, for a lot of people, they actually miss going to the office. They miss the commute. You know, which is weird because everyone's always when you go into an office, all you can think about is when is my work from home day? You know, it's just like smacks you in the face. Like I just want to sleep in today. But it seems like all of a sudden you take away this thing that everybody's always bitching about. And now they want it back. Like what what is it about this? This actually going into an office and getting on, you know, sitting in a sweaty train to get to the office that actually <laughs> makes makes <laughs> makes people su uh, surprisingly happy that they miss it human nature we want what we don't have even when we say you know we, we didn't want it before it was taken away from us uh i'm, I'm with you like just because i'm spoiled and there's overpriced amazing coffee around my, my office and the uh, camaraderie and, and, and the bonding you can do with the people that you work with as far as the you know the dynamic feedback of, of sharing a, a table with somebody and sharing ideas mm -hmm. especially over like when you're getting 
phenomenally caffeinated. Um, but just real time discussion, not through silicone and glass, just with another human being. Um, but that said, you know, it's, it's going to be weird going back because the distraction free environment has been extraordinary for just general productivity. So I feel like yeah. we're going to realize really quickly once you put 60 people on a floor or however many there even are of us, um, what that does for things like focus and, and productivity. Um, but another bit element just being, I'm a big thinker out loud. Uh, I'm a, I'm a visual learner. So I appreciate the ability to have like a whiteboard and just to go up to it with someone else, you know, I'll be blue, you'll be red. Where am I wrong? You fill in your spot and let's do this. And let's like kind mm. of form an idea, not as an abstraction, but like, let's see it laid out in front of us. And it still makes sense. Maybe we have something. So that's been a little challenging to do just virtually um, and through each other's voices to make sure we're speaking to the idea and each other's, you know, what's going on in, in your coconut up there. Um, and I think just something I, I miss collaborating with real time with my colleagues. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, I mean, what is this, the way I see this thing, uh, it worries me actually and encourages me at the same time, because if you're looking at this through the eyes of, and I want to get your take on where this is, like what are the long-term ramifications of this, specifically the lockdown, not the coronavirus, the effects of the lockdown? What is, you know, how is that going to play out from a commercial standpoint for most people moving forward? Because what, what I see now is the most clear thing that smacks me in the face is you see all these business leaders, CEOs, founders that are dumping tens of thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands into commercial space in prime locations. You're in San Diego. I'm up in San Francisco. Boston, New York costs a damn fortune just to keep the office open. These people now see that their companies are functioning. They're running fine, right? And that is an enormous amount of, of overhead. That is money straight back in your pocket. So for me, that is that is really encouraging because I'm a huge proponent of working where you want, right? Because it gives people an opportunity to travel and work. It gives them an opportunity to spend more time with their family, with their, um, you know, with their with their spouse, with their girlfriend, their boyfriend, whatever. Um, I, I think it gives a lot more opportunity back in, in life, but it seems like that might be the only option for a lot of these companies now that that now that we've like hyper evolved we've been pushed through a really quick evolution process over the last couple months um what what is your take on that yeah so completely agree with where you're going with all that i think we have the benefit as knowledge workers that and now we get to play with the new the new branding of work from home or work from anywhere i don't know what we're, we're calling it anymore so the, the cute tagline but I think ultimately it's it's true as far as a business's operations. Now there's definitely considerations as far as things like security. So I have a big financial institution that's a client, for example. So what are the new challenges with home networks and you know uh, how authenticated are they for uh, what you want out of out of a big bank? These are challenges for like the future. I think immediately is a lot of firms will be just reconsidering their concept of a, of an office. Do you need it? And to your point, do you need it to the tune of a million dollars a month in downtown San Francisco? It seems to be like a little bit of a legacy corporate thing. Almost feels like a relic these days where 
the trappings of this skyscraper or this beautiful lobby to to woo your prospects or uh, or you know clients or whatever who cares do do people care anymore i think perhaps not they're focused on performance they're focused on you know driving an roi and are things working and honestly yeah. i've even heard you know anecdotally of people bring things up of just like wow that was a you know a beautiful office and we're paying for it because we're the client and that's where our money goes i'd like to see that money go towards r&d or developing their teams or 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 lots of ideas i don't really care about the marble in the bathroom so definitely buildings and commercial real estate i think we'll see start to sputter because we're all working just fine if you look at even some some areas where they have campuses jesus do you need seven buildings when 100% of those people are are knowledge workers the cleaning the electricity the ac everybody's commute there and back and even just that what that does you know for the roads uh and that gets into what does that mean for cities cities have been a place where we've just jam-packed a bunch of you know people who want the opportunities that are an outcome of you know a densely populated area with those skyscrapers with people assembling and like creating opportunities if that can be displaced wherever what does that mean for you know occupancy of of residential places in san francisco do you care do you want to live there you want to live in upstate maine and you can still work at google if google doesn't give a shit wherever you're, you're plugging in from so I think we're really going to start to see that wheel get turned. And just practically speaking, it feels almost financially irresponsible to not evaluate that critically and say, do we need headcount for 500 people? When on a good day, if I mean, a lot of policies, are, they're shifting towards work from home, work from anywhere, whatever, in the first place. So now that we've had this experiment where everybody's doing it and you know, depending on what that's meant for your workers and productivity and the intangibles with things like culture and morale and camaraderie with, you know, the people that you used to share a cube with, I think it's going to go, you know, be evaluated a lot more critically. And uh, we'll see companies look for cost savings in that department because do you need it? Uh, go to, it could go to perks. It could go to anything, anything else apart from just keeping the lights on with some cement and glass for people to sit inside. Well, some of it is just flexing. I mean, you know, the marble in your bathroom, like you described, really, you're just trying to impress somebody with that. At that point, when you've got a campus, it's not about the camaraderie. It's, it's not about having people in one space for productivity. No, you're showing off. Like, we've got a campus, we've got a bus, we've got a caterer, and really, you're like trying to do a couple of things. You're trying to try to flex a little bit, you're trying to show off, uh, and you're trying to woo in candidates with this, uh, the whole golden handcuffed type of mentality where you bring people in because they're excited about their nap pod, that kind of thing, right? Um, but if that's if that's all gone, then it, then it doesn't make, it doesn't really make sense to have those kinds of things, right? Like if clients don't care about coming in, if they don't want to come in, and for the foreseeable future, they're not going to want to come in. Nobody even wants to walk into a building right now without a mask on. So that whole face-to-face interaction thing, that's done for the foreseeable future. Like, I don't know, I haven't seen somebody shake hands in, a, a, in you know, three months. It could be a year before they do again. So the whole point of actually having an office seems to kind of evaporate when you look at it from that standpoint. Um, I guess I guess the only thing that I fear is 
yeah, you do get some sense of camaraderie. You get that, like, my head's about to explode. Come take a walk with me and, like, you know, go get a coffee so that I can make it explode times two. I want to go nuclear today kind of thing. You know, but mostly it's just like that release. I need to get out yeah. of here with somebody. I need to take a walk. Whereas now when you're home, a lot of people are experiencing, uh, okay, I'll just double down on my computer. I'm not going to take that walk. I'm going to walk. I'm going to work 10 hours. I'm going to work an extra two hours today because there is nobody now knocking on my desk saying, hey, let's get out of here for a little bit. So I, I don't know. I, I see a lot of positives and negatives out of it. But on balance, I think it's probably a very positive thing just because it seems like so much wasted money for so little. So, uh, yeah, I, I mean, on balance, I'm like 90%. Yeah, this is probably a pretty good thing, giving people a whole lot of good opportunities and and probably reinvesting in things that matter. I'm with you. I'm going to get the origin story wrong, but I believe it was 3M where the idea of an open office floor plan was born from, where they took some engineers, uh, somebody smarter than me can look up the story, but I believe the story goes something like it was construction or whatever. There was this open building. Hmm. It spilled over with some of you know very smart people who are now all sharing a lunch table and conference rooms and just walking by each other's desks and saying, hey, what are you working on? And what was born of that was the open office floor plan, because I think there's merit to some of what a campus or a big uh, you know, company's physical presence can mean for it being like an idea beehive and everything is germinating across each other's work. And sure, there's areas of integration and, you know, you can find some really interesting things from that. But I feel like this was talked a lot before we, you know, back, back when we had offices three months ago and another time, the open office floor plan, as far as, you know, what I've followed in like the headlines and stuff has seems to be the conclusion is a failure where, it's noise pollution, it's distraction, it's stress what inducing. Is noise? Let me let me pause you. What's noise pollution? Uh, just I'm trying to get work done, and ten people around me are having a discussion, so I'm not no. able to be right. like protected from. Uh, now, perhaps there's good noises because someone will say something that reminds me of a thought that I forgot to share, and now I'm contributing. But I think when it comes down to just like get, having your space and getting your work done and, and doing it in peace a lot less of a library and more of a cafeteria i don't think anybody not not everybody can work that way some can some can't some of the time not all the time whatever so i think the whole concept of an open office floor plan generally was being reconsidered anyways Mm -hmm. maybe this is that forcing function to be like you know what open office closed office what's an office just do it from home like figure it out and maybe we do have something with some hot desks and yeah, like we'll have a pot of yeah. coffee come in and do your thing. But uh, I feel like that, that trajectory was en masse. Everybody who had adopted the open office floor plan, because it was just, it's just what you did. No one questioned it. Now we get to question mm-hmm. it with evidence-based experiments. We've been running for yeah. how long has it been? Too long. Um, and we just see what comes out the other side. So for some companies, maybe yes. For some companies, maybe no. Who knows what it means for even like leases and obligations and these types of things. But I think eventually it's just it's a healthy discussion to, to reconsider uh, all the, the traditional things that we were doing just because. Before it'd be like, what do you mean we can't have an office? And now maybe it's the, the inverse of that of like an office. Nah, I, never heard of it. Yeah. We've never stepped foot in one. We all do it from our couch. Could be. This could be as antiquated as you know things that you see 
uh, coming out of the 50s, you're like, people actually did that? That's That sounds like insanity to me. And for me, I, it is kind of that way. When I think of an open office, it just seems like such a glaring, obvious mistake that's just been overlooked for so long. I mean, it's there's this old school mentality that if you're present, you're productive. And we all know that is absolute bullshit. You know, most people are like when you go into an office, you measure the office workers productivity. I think they're fully productive, full capacity for like two hours a day, two and a half hours a day. Right. But almost there's almost like this mentality. And my audience has heard this say a million times. But there's this mentality that um, if you're there, you're getting stuff done. But most of the time, those people are just like screwing around on Facebook for five and a half hours. And they're just like going to another screen when you walk up to them. You know, so it's like there's this weird disconnect where you think if you see them, you're in control. You know, like if you're if you own the business, I've got control because everybody's right in front of me. But in reality, you got people tapping you on the shoulder. Hey, look at this video. Hey, come take a walk with me. And people just screwing around. And it's really it's really not it's not the case. And it seems to be like this this huge oversight that's existed in this old school world that just took this thing to uh, completely break it. You know, and especially with the the open uh, floor plan type thing. What do you call it? Open office or open air type thing? Something like that. One of those. Yeah. Whatever the hell it is. Yeah. I, I was talking with somebody the other day that worked for Tesla. So she, she worked in um, Elon's like thousand person open office, open air thing with just an insane amount of people. It looked like going to a carnival or something. And um, it's, for me, that sounds like a damn nightmare. Like I need a ninja proof desk up against a wall so that I'm not just completely surrounded on all sides by people. So I think people are going to start to see that this is just like a more productive way to to live. And then, I don't know, prob- probably start to adopt. And I think companies are going to adopt and put it into, put their money into other stuff. You talked about something I want to jump into real quick. Actually, let's spend a little bit of time on this because you talked about like reinvesting. If a company were to forego their lease, they're done. They just say, all right, we're done with this commercial lease. Um, We're going to reinvest into ROI generating activities. You've got, I know I talked to you before, you've got strong opinions on this, like especially with an agency type of model. Uh, Why, you know, you're asking questions. Why is it that we still have this model where we, invest in relationships instead of ROI, right? I'm probably butchering the whole damn thing, but you've got a lot of theories on this. No, no. And I know you're working on some projects. Yeah, yeah, I know you're working on some projects. This is my best chance. That was the best I could regurgitate what you told me. Um, but you're working on some projects on this. Give me a little bit of background into what that looks like for you. Definitely. No, I think you're you're kind of uncovering a lot of irony. I didn't even really realize and like how meta a lot of this is that we're rethinking so many you know, legacy things, because it's just how we've done them. And change is hard. It's always like the change of, you know, uh, I'm sorry, the pain of of change or the pain of remaining the same. And sometimes you just got to do what's less painful, but that means inertia. That means you're just doing things because you've been doing things, not necessarily because on merit, it's better. It's because, you know, if you're going to stop a a tanker, I think it takes something like a mile just to, to slow that thing down. So you need a runway. And for big, big companies, it's really hard to do. It's complex. Everything is all Frankenstein on the back end. There's processes, there's people, there's politics. It's a ton. 
see, I think the same way that we may be at a little bit of like a, a new chapter where we're not in the office um, because we always had been and we're not focusing or having discussions around like what that may have meant for things like bias and political fiefdoms that pop up just because we all sit in the same floor. Um, and then even performance where, you know, just this, this bias of what do you mean? I see that person here early every day and leaving late every night. They must be a top performer. Are they? Let's look at the data. So it's up to management to now evaluate what performance actually means and if it's being present or if it's actually, you know, meaningfully contributing in a unique way that no one else would be able to. And you bring something special. So, yeah, with that, I've been in agencies for going on 10 years now. And I think there's a lot of things that we do because we've done them. And I tend to just have this, this way of breaking things into like each component part and questioning, why the hell would we do that? Um, it's fun to just wrestle with that stuff and say like, is there something there? I don't know. And anytime like you're, you're challenged for like, I oh, don't, don't ask that question. Ever since I was a kid, I just want to ask him 10 times louder. <laughs> you're like, no, now I really want to know. Yeah. Give me, give me a good reason. Uh, or if I'm just like, it's above my pay grade, whatever, I'll shut up. But that doesn't mean I'm not curious. So I think the way that we may be rethinking offices and corporate culture, we really need to rethink things as far as um, so specific to someone like in my role, that's pretty hybrid-y, but definitely leans on the client service side of things. Less qualitative, more quantitative, period. There's definitely a time and a place for you know, your soft skills and building rapport with clients. Be a human, be personable. You know, you got to be trustworthy somehow. Sometimes some schmoozing can get you there. But at the end of the day, it's not what performs. It's not what's going to move the needle or the right needle or, you know, has this measurable mechanism for, did we do good enough? And to answer that question, we need to have like a sound measurement strategy. So how do we do that? And engineering some things thereafter. So yeah, I've been thinking about it for a long, long time. Anecdotally, I have a ton to share just from my agency experience, the amount of websites I've seen, clients I've visited, teams I've worked on, where through all the years of questioning a lot of, a lot of stuff, I've kind of had a, a dear diary thing going on that has sort of started to cobble together to be a little bit of like a how-to as far as advancing some of how we think of these things with what's to come. So we've done the old school ad agency stuff, mad men, been there, done that. It's gross. We moved on. It doesn't stop. We come in tomorrow, we do it differently. Uh, so kind of pushing that mentality forward in a lot of different areas. So can you give me any you might not be able to, but can you give me any examples that have come up where you said, this doesn't work? This is an example of exactly what I'm talking about and needs to get fixed. Definitely. So I think as a concept, it's, you know, even with the best intentions of trying to understand a business challenge, it's having the wrong approach of like, let me take that person to dinner. Let me get to know them, what's important to them their self-interest, how can I make them look good? And I think like it, it, it's coming from a good place. But at the end of the day, if, if your value is just like picking up the bar tab or buying them a steak or sending them a gift, these types of things, nice gestures, nice tokens, but maybe that person wants somebody to scrap with them. Maybe they want somebody to actually you know challenge the way that they do business and they want a partner who, look, whatever, we're staying late, I'll buy you pizza. But I'm actually gonna, we're gonna collaborate better together 
And people don't know where to start with that. And they don't know what types of questions to ask or at the end of the day, what the client is paying them for. I tell this to my, my teams, my clients. I'm a nice guy. I try to be a nice guy. I just want to be. I like to be. It's fun to be good to people. But no one pays me to be a nice guy. You pay me to get results. And I will be nice you know, throughout that effort. But damn it, if there's something that you know, the data strongly suggests that you should do A, and for bad reasons, you're doing B, I got I to gotta just bring it down. I got to just kind of, you know, be louder about A, and you owe it to the merit of the ideas to just, you know, be able to challenge them effectively instead of because I said so. Yeah, and you've seen plenty of that. I mean, when you first started up at a Brafton lifetime ago, pre-coronavirus, which is qualifies as a lifetime ago at this point, um, you were working strictly in relationship management, right? So you, your role was practically this. It was developing relationships and trying to weave in some sort of results to that, right? Brafton definitely put me on that path. And I think it came a little naturally to me. And it also just provided me the opportunity to really tap into it where I was a problem solver. I got in a plane, I went to go see a client, went to go visit the company to figure out, hey, look, things aren't really working out as well as they could be. Let's figure it out. So getting into conference with some people, battling with ideas, getting told no, getting told yes, everything in between, getting creative and seeing like what else is possible that maybe we're not thinking of. It's a fun thing to do. And I think I was under the impression that I was in no way special. I'm not. But the ideas themselves seemed to be contained and not scaled. And, you know, when I, I, I read a lot, so I'm, I'm picking up books just that seem to be in my line of work that I'm interested in my own career, professional development. They do nothing apart from the very obvious. Like if, 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 you, need, if you need a chapter to tell you send an agenda for a meeting or don't be an asshole and get too drunk, like these, these very obvious to me things, mm. that's not what I want to uh, contribute. That's not what I want to add. So I think that there's a lot of different stuff that you know, Stephen Pinker calls it the curse of knowledge. Where like once you once you know something, you think everybody else knows that. And especially for me, like I'm an idiot. If I learned learn about it, I'm a late bloomer. Everyone else must know about this stuff. A lot of times they don't. So it's finding a way to just articulate that to a broader audience who may learn different ways and applying it in the context of the different business challenges. Is there an argument to be made that there is? There is and always will be a place for our relationship management focus first and ROI second. Because for me, I think it all comes down to humans and and um, personalities. People like to work with people that they like, and they don't like to work with people that challenge them quite as much. I mean, I'd say probably majority of people want to work with people that they enjoy picking up the phone when they call, and even if it's bullshit that comes out of their mouth and it's not results. Do you think that the majority of people just want some, just want that comfort rather than results? I mean, I this came that- out of, this, this arose out of somewhere. The whole Mad Men thing came, didn't come from nowhere, you know? Yeah. I think you're right. It taps into just human nature. I also think that there's a changing of the guard where maybe that older school stroke my ego type of archetype is just moving on. Retiring hasn't shown their value or, or went somewhere else. And now it's it's being performance driven. And I also think that it gets conflated where 
So, so these things are not mutually exclusive, right? You can be a nice person and you can be a person who's willing to do some jujitsu on some ideas that maybe need to withstand taking some shots, taking some hits to see if, if they're credible after they've been put through the ringer. I, I try and be both those things. So I don't think that they're mutually exclusive and you're either all in on the data, all in on the ROI and the performance, and therefore you're not the nice, softer people person, uh, you know, effective communicator things. I think it is all of those things. But at the end of the day, I think there just needs to be a correction where the hard skills and the performance-driven stuff that you bring is, you know, weighed heavier than someone who just knows what you like in your coffee and, uh, you know, knows knows when they're visiting in town, what restaurant to take you to and, and foot the bill. Sure. Again, those are nice. There's nothing wrong with that. I just think that we should, mm. you know, expect better of ourselves. Well, this is probably the perfect time to be able to push that idea out there into the universe because there is no other option. You know, I mean, you're not buying steaks for anybody. You're not taking anybody golfing. And if you call a client and say, hey, do you want to do you want to have a Zoom chat with me so that I can woo you? They're going to say, no, show me, show me the, the return. That's all I care about now because you have nothing else to offer me. Right. So exactly. this seems like ironically, this is a, a perfect time to get that idea out there. I think it's it's a big forcing function for sure. Have you have you been to any Zoom parties? A Zoom birthday party, anything of the like. I try to try to avoid them. I did a, I mean, I ran a happy hour for for me and my team, and we, I unboxed a whole bunch of pretentious beers while they watched, and that was, I mean, yeah. that was about the extent of it. It was it was more painful on them than it was on me, but that's about as much as I've done. Generally speaking, they're terrible. Now we kind of <laughs> have to do it. It's just it's the hand we're dealt. But yeah, to your point how are you going to add value in a world where value can't be measured in restaurants and bar tabs and, you know, cozying up and, and schmoozing and working a room? Those things might still be important. It's just not what we have at our disposal right now. And it'll probably be questioned with whatever happens after this. So I think the timing to just like really double down on put the performance driven stuff, because companies are hurting. I don't even know how many, you know, it's, it's brutal. It's been bloody with the amount of companies that have failed. It's not just a health crisis. It's not just an economic crisis. It's both. So pretty rare that we're you know stuck and getting vivisected by both of these things, just demolished. Mm-hmm. How dare somebody you know make a business decision because it makes them feel good versus this one just it seems to like it'll, it'll perform better for for everybody. You know what I'm saying? Like when when you're questioning this yeah. stuff eventually there's just a lens that you put in front of it and you see it a different way. And I feel like a lot of eyes are being opened and seeing things for not even necessarily what they should have been. All this stuff had its place in the world, but definitely what's next. So you've got a a book that you're working on. It's in the works. And I know you've got a little bit of a chip on your shoulder towards these types of books which I'm guessing might have inspired you to write one. Um, as you mentioned, and you mentioned in the past that you'll read one of these business books and you've got 20 pages of substance and 180 pages of rehashed garbage that you've heard a billion times from every other book, right? Um, <laughs> are you, what, what are you trying to, are you trying to break that model and create a book that's just the amount of pages that it needs to be to talk about this or what's, what's the plan? 
Absolutely. I think the genesis of this was kind of just sick of, of seeing and rereading stuff that just, for me, failed. Now, for others, if, if that's your thing, if that's what you're looking to, to get out of it, and that's where you are in your development, have at it. It just wasn't for me. And I feel like there's a lot of other people out there like me who would be interested in, in a lot of these ideas. Um, you know, there's a, I'll mention it by name, but there's a book called The Art of Client Service. I find it useless. And yet it's this, this you know, <laughs> fixture on the bookshelves of amazing people. I mean, check it out. This, this is one man's opinion, but there's, there's quotes in there where, you know, the author calls the concept of working remotely chilling because you can't get really everything we've talked about in the conversation up to this point, just the warm fuzzies from schmoozing a client and all these things. So if that's your what stick, he's doing now. <laughs> all the best to him. Uh, I, don't, I don't mean to pick on him. It's just one that was really a catalyst for, I think something else needs to be said. And I don't see anyone huh. else who's saying it. So why don't I just, just be the one to say it? Uh, it made me think of, so one of my favorite writers is Chuck Palahniuk. So he was kind of doing the same thing as just a consumer of fiction. He just couldn't find a book he wanted to read. He would get excited for it. He would <laughs> turn some pages and he would just be let down. So it just dawned on him, why don't I just write the book that I want to read just selfishly? Let me own that. Let me just try it. So instead of just kind of talking shit and everyone else who has a book and I don't, let me see if I can actually do it. And he did. And now he's, you know, he has a great work behind him. So I think even besides like, like before the what of the book itself, the why is I am so sick of imposter syndrome. I don't, I hate the name. I don't even like it's called that. Like we all know what it, what it means. It's just this stupid, stupid thing, feeling inadequate, being on the sidelines, watching other people do things and being like happy or sad, like, hey, good for them. They're, they're so smart. I'd never be able to do what they can do. They just have it together and I don't. Or the other side of like, this clown, what do they do? What are they getting credit for? This is, this is horrible. <laughs> and yet they're the one, you know, they've, they've monetized it. They're successful. They're happy. That's their path. They're living that life. So it, it was really a kick in the pants as far as like the why. I was just so sick of, of having this be like a notes thing from my own scribblings that I wanted to see what does it take to write a book? Uh, what does it take to self-publish it? I've been you know, in digital marketing for a while now. Let me buy some ads. Let me learn uh, you know, Amazon sponsor stuff. Let me see if I can build an audience. Let me do the things that I've been preaching clients do forever. And let me get a taste of it with my own time, with my own money, and see what happens. Right. So, huh. um, I don't know. You just brought up all kinds of points and I've lost just about all of them. <laughs> I, I did find that book that you're looking uh, that you told me about the art art of client service. It's got one, one star review. I'm assuming that's you. <laughs> I um, did not actually, I'm, I'm good about not, not having a, 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 paper, a digital paper trail with, with anywhere on the internet, social media or otherwise. <laughs> In my mind, it's one star, but I, I wasn't willing to, to actually give it the grade on Amazon. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. That's funny you mentioned uh, Chuck Palahniuk too. Um, I didn't realize that's I didn't realize that's how we got to start this imposter syndrome, or the, rather, just not liking what was out there and wanting to create his own thing. That's interesting. I think. Um, yeah. I think the majority of people probably fit into that category. We always think that. It's always us. It's always egocentric. I have imposter syndrome. I think most people have imposter syndrome. You know, I don't think it's a unique situation to me or you. I think people usually fit into three buckets. One is they've got imposter syndrome and they 
don't feel like they're qualified to write about it. Two, they don't have the motivation or willpower. Or three, they do it. And that people that do it is just like 1% of the really, really hungry people, you know? So um, it's good to hear that you got in that 1% that's actually doing. What did it take to, was there a moment that clicked? What what happened in your brain? Or you're just like, all right, screw it, I'm done fucking around, I'm doing this. Yeah, I think I was just kind of done. I think I have, you know, a note doc that I'm, I'm not exaggerating. It's like 200 pages. So like just some formatting and that's a book itself. I haven't even really done much. So I think I just saw the volume of stuff I've accumulated over the years. And, you know, I'm a big reader. It's one of my main hobbies. I absolutely love it, but I'm just consuming and I'm not really contributing. So I read a book and even if it's, I learn so much from it, I find it interesting I'll apply it with my teams and my clients and like you know, put something out there. But I just felt like I didn't have so much to show for it besides like, you know, a Kindle that is slow from being bloated with how many damn books I've, I put in the thing. But uh, <laughs> an, an actual moment, I don't really know. And honestly, probably some of our conversations, uh, just I know, you know your travels and talking to other people who have kind of just been through similar stuff. And I don't know if it was a specific moment or like a, or a sequence of events where they just said, you know what, all of a sudden I just woke up, I wanted to write a book. Uh, it's something I've, I've wanted to do for, for a long, long time. Uh, I guess maybe just harnessing it in a different way instead of feel, having like this, this poor me. Like, like you said, everything's mm. imposter syndrome. Shut up. You're not special. Mm. So like because of that, get out of its way or let it be there. You got to learn to, to live with it. It's mm. going to be the voice in your head. So tell it to shut the fuck up. Just do your thing and uh, do something good with <laughs> right. it. So there's a, a lot of this audience is entrepreneurial. Like I share this with a lot of people that they run their own little small businesses or they're, you know, they're, um, they're trying to, they're, they're trying to become freelancers. Um, they're trying to start an organization you know, across the board. Um, walk me through what it's going to look like to make it happen. You know, there's a lot of people that are in the shoes that you are in, not yet doing. What is this process going to look like for you doing? Is it going to look like writing everything out in a Word doc and then self-publishing it and then marketing it? Or is there no plan and you're just doing and throw it at the wall? Do it Yeah. Happens. I mean, I think that's an incredibly important question because that's what I was searching for forever. There has to be something out there that shows me how to do this. So what are the steps I need to take? It's not there. You just got to do it. It's going to suck. It's going to frustrate you. It'll piss you off. Then you have moments where it's like, it's good. You're cruising. You're happy. For me, I need something a little more like regimented just to hold myself accountable. So yeah, it was, it was putting together almost like a schedule of I'm going to write for, you know, four hours a week. The timer starts, I start writing, even if I'm frozen, something's coming out. Just like, you want to be a writer? Go and write. Otherwise, don't even try and claim that you are. So I think it was getting a little more comfortable with the unknown and not knowing where to start and having it perfectly engineered and figured out ahead of time. Because even if you do, you don't. COVID's going to happen. Life's going to happen. You're going to have ups, you're going to have downs, and like the best plans get derailed. You just got to do it and then just do your best and take the feedback as it comes and wake up tomorrow and do it all over again. For me, I think another big element of this whole thing too was balancing 
to me, what felt a little bit like arrogance, which I find like grotesque. Like I just, I, I, it's one of my least, you know, the, the quality of that in a human, I just find repulsive. And yet there's some usefulness to it because no one does anything if there's not a chip on their shoulder and they don't think that they can do it better than what's already out there. So I think I just got a little more comfortable of keeping that like icky feeling of arrogance at bay and knowing that like, no, this is okay. I've been doing this for a long time. I had, I do have good ideas and that's not a controversial statement. And like, I, I do mean well by it. So I'm just going to do it because I really do think it could be better than yeah. some of the stuff that's out there. My relationship with that way of thinking came a long way because I had so much avoidance of just being like, ah, oh, dude, you better shut up. You better stay humble. You better not even try and, and think like that. I think it's okay to think like that to a point and, uh, you know, have it be a tool uh, when used in the right way. I heard some, somebody told me something really interesting once on that note, <clears throat> the whole having some degree of arrogance is useful kind of thing. Cause I've, I've always struggled with that too. It's like, why am I qualified to talk about this kind of thing? You know, it's almost like this extremism in your, in your brain where you have to be in the top 0.0001% or you're not allowed to speak. But the reality is um, if you know something about a topic you probably know way more than the majority of people that are trying to learn about that topic. So if you know more than most people, then you probably have something to say. And if you wait for the moment where you know more than everybody, you'll be a hundred and you'll never write the book. Right. So I think mm -hmm. there is some sort of, there, there does have to be a little bit of balancing and, and looking at it from a stepping back and going, Oh, okay. Maybe I don't know everything, but I know enough to help other people. And they would probably buy that. So I, yeah. I found that kind of, I, that, I found that a little bit reassuring, you know, um, when I think about, do I want to write a book? That kind of thing. Do I have anything to say? Um, and no, I really don't. But I mean, I probably got a few things to say that are, you know, but they, they could help people that know less about the topic. Yeah, I think it's also just a newer, kind of another newer concept that barriers to entry have been lowered in some instances, they're just not existent, where we were kind of mm. raised to just like raise your hand and the teacher will call on you. Or, you know, if you want a promotion, the boss will choose you. And we're looking to everybody else to give us permission to do something. I think that's kind of just been like beaten into us. Um, and honestly, this even goes back to the office thing too. Like industrial revolution started schools. That's why we all sit in a row because then we were just obedient workers working in the mill sitting in a row and there was one person who wants something raise your hand otherwise shut up don't question it i think it's kind of now the opposite where you don't have to you know shop around for a publisher you can or you can just write something build an audience put it out there ask people to read it and tell you what what they think we're all a lot more connected something else i've, I've been like peddling around with just an e-com store something on shopify it's cheap you know it's it's i'm not buying manufacturing facility it's drop shipping stuff so you can start a business in an afternoon and that's just a weird thing to <laughs> understand in the first place and then harness in the other and it'd be like okay yeah. well now what well now what nobody knows just go and figure it out and you know experiment yeah. and have fun and do your best and if something comes with it great it's yeah it's better done than perfect really i interviewed a guy um Trent Deersmith is back um, 
oh God, at least six months ago or so. He started a, a software company on his own and became really, really successful. He's one of the first podcasters, business podcasters. He started about eight years ago when the whole thing was new. And I asked him, look, same thing I said to you. I've got an entrepreneurial type of audience and they're stuck. Like how to, how to get them unstuck. And he explained this concept to me. I think it was like the red ball and the purple ball, something like that. And he says, you got this vision of in your mind that your product is going to be this, this red ball. But in reality, like you're going to start with that and it's not going to look anything like that by the end. Like it's not going to, your vision is just basically a, a foundation for doing work because the end result is just going to be something you don't even recognize in all likelihood because you're just going to be learning as you, as you create. Um, and I think that's, I, I think that's a hard hurdle for people. You know, it's almost like you don't want to start until it's perfect in your there's a future vision of something you haven't even created yet that's absolutely perfect, but it's never going to look like that, you know? And, and reality is that if you, if you ask anybody that's created any of these things, you can't wait for those moments of inspiration to get there. You know, 90% of it, or maybe 99% of it is work. And then inspiration comes while you're working, you know? And a lot of people just sit there and go, ah, oh, well, you know, I'll wait till I get inspired. You're going to wait forever, really. Like, it's just a matter of, you said carve out four hours a week, and it's like, hey, this is my life now. I'm sitting at my desk the next two hours straight putting on music and I'm working. I have no other option. Just got to get it done. Well, it's it's to me when I thought of it more of as like a work mentality than a do some perfect art creation project mentality. It changes the whole dynamic. It has to. I mean, look at even, you know, what happened with Google was they were academics. And I don't even know how many times they tried to sell the damn thing, but they weren't in it to make the world's best search engine. At least I, I, don't, I don't think they were. Now, it, it turned into that, uh, but no one you know, set out to say, yeah, this thing is going to turn out perfectly as I have it planned. You create your own luck in a lot of those situations, but the luck wouldn't have been created if you didn't have something to build off of and you didn't start. So if you start opportunities can emerge and you can, you know, learn to, to play them and you're going to lose a lot of them, but it would have never even presented itself if you hadn't even gotten something off the ground in the first place. Yep. Okay. So big question. When's the book coming out? Fantastic question. Um, it's been an interesting year. So I don't think anybody's New Year's resolutions have, have gone as they've planned. That said, I'm giving myself a deadline for the end of this year to have something that's shareable. You'll probably get a first copy that you can shred as far as how bad <laughs> is this writing? How, 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 how coherent are these thoughts? Who, who in God's name would want to read such a thing? But uh, yeah, the end of this year, I'm looking to ship what is you know a, a very readable draft that maybe would be close enough to bring home and actually self-publish and launch and see what happens. Awesome. Okay. So it's going to be Amazon self-publish um, print version or just uh, you're going to do digital only? I think I'm just going to do digital only, but again, we'll see what develops in the okay. meantime. Uh, who knows what the world will look like and what that, that tech will provide. There's a lot of, I mean, it's just interesting just doing, you know, the, the backend research with like, what would this final product look like? So over the next six months, I think that there's a lot of opportunity for new, new developments in that space too. So I mean, Amazon's probably going to buy Barnes and Noble, right? And they'll have like a weird, yeah, any monkey can write a book and we'll just 
you won kid here's your spot on the shelf <laughs> whatever see you later uh so i got my eye on what's developing but it'll be a digital version uh yeah by the end of the year okay well in the spirit of uh, accountability like we've just been talking about we'll uh earmark the beginning of january <clears throat> to pick up this conversation and Hopefully I have a version of it in front of me by then. And hopefully that uh, keeps enough of a hot fire under your ass to, to keep things motivated and <laughs> and working through the summer. Yeah, we'll, we'll see what it brings. You know, I think that's, that's even another forcing function here is just socializing it, talking to a, a trusted friend or a peer or someone as far as what do you think? Uh, I have found that nobody's really laughing at me. People are being supportive and it's okay to uh, share what might've felt like a crazy idea and then, yeah, now your your ass is on the line. You gotta you gotta deliver. Once you've socialized it and put it out there in the world, make good on it. Yeah, you're gonna have to now. We've got a, a few hundred up to five hundred regular listeners per episode. They all heard it. So you're on the line. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing what, else. What, what else am I doing? It feel pretty good, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Harassing people breaking into your apartment complex, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, well, they'll they'll have plenty to read by. Uh, Next time, we can yeah. give them a copy when they're <laughs> when they're stealing another bicycle. Well, it's been fun catching up. Thanks for doing this, man. Um, where can people find you? Do you wanna do you wanna put out any any links, uh, seer, whatever you want to uh, get out there in the universe? Yeah, definitely. Um, I do not have much of a, a social media presence, but I can share you with my my LinkedIn profile. I'm doing a little bit of just writing and just little quibbles on there, just to stay sharp and share some fresh ideas. I have a Twitter I've used for like customer service purposes. It's, it's pretty bankrupt, but technically it's there. And I will plan on eventually using that as more of like an audience building, pushing platform. Um, and then, yeah, obviously check out, check out Seer, everything that we're putting out, our YouTube page, all the cool stuff that we're innovating. Uh, it's, it's exciting. It's really fun to be a part of. Awesome. Well, check out Will Stevens on LinkedIn and check in again with us at the beginning of January. <clears throat> we're going to keep him accountable. We're going to be checking out his book and um, hopefully get some updates as to how it went creating this project, how this red dot turned into a blue dot or whatever the hell my analogy was. Anyways, thanks for joining us, everybody. Will, thanks again. This has been awesome. It's good catching up with you, man. Thanks for having me. You got it. Mm-hmm.